OTB Rugby. One of the best wingers in the world. One of the best Irish wingers of all time. He's done it. Of course he can do it again. It's just very, very important to be able to exit well against big teams and get down its territory game. Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now. Rugby on Off The Ball. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. You're very welcome. Always happy to bring in Mr. Matt Williams. Long time no talk. I hope the uh, French summer is treating you well. Hello. Hello, Jay. Great to see you, mate. I'm, I'm actually talking here from northern Spain. Um, on holidays, I've got my son, over Teddy, who you've met. We've got father and son four days in northern Spain. So uh, I'm trying to show him the architectural and cultural delights of the area and... Um, He's got uh, Biggie Small trying to educate me on the music in the car. I think I'm losing out again in, as, as a, a father on that one. But uh, no, it's lovely to be with you, mate. Okay. Great to talk to you. Okay, lovely. And so he didn't mind you ignoring him to watch The Ashes for the last five days, no? Mate, we've been uh, listening to it and watching it and putting it on and carrying it and screaming and yelling <laughs> at each other and uh, in despair and then in joy. It's, uh, it's been a great t- – the two tests have, have been fantastic, Joe. Yeah. been really great entertainment, high drama, uh, lots, <laughs> lots of controversy and lots of – this last one, lots of yelling and, and bad behaviour from a lot of people. So, But, yeah, been compelling, uh, compelling sport. Well, I did want to have you on to talk cricket and rugby. I know it's very much a rugby umbrella here and we'll come to the Nations Championship in a moment. But so on the cricket front, uh, day five of this second test and people would have seen – the clips of the usually very genteel long room at Lords, open arms as the Australian players walk through and chants of cheat and your disgrace. Uh, you know, basically lots of very angry, posh people, I, I think, and Australian players uh, half smiling and half grunting back. So uh, this is to do with Alex Carey's quote-unquote controversial stumping of Johnny Bairstow. And the uh, point here is that there are the rules of the game and there is the spirit of the game and the Australians betrayed the spirit of the game. Even Rishi Sunak, uh, for all that is wrong with English uh, politics at the moment, even Rishi Sunak is commenting on this at the moment and giving out about the uh, Australians. So, I don't know, I I don't have a great um, understanding of, of this situation the way you would. How egregious was the stumping of Johnny Bairstow? It's certainly controversial, Joe. Um, yeah, look, I played cricket all my life, and I've seen that often. Um, it's hard to explain to people, and I, and I think, you know, here's if you read the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian papers, they're they're, they're on the opposite side. They're saying with the English, the the, the behaviour of of the uh, uh, members of the MCC in the Lord's Long Room was an absolute disgrace and they have apologised to the players. My friend, a great mate from Australia, happened to be there and filmed it and you couldn't believe it. If you saw it at a at a, at a Millwall soccer match when they were at their worst in the 80s, you know, you'd say, okay, well, that's what they do. That, that, it was really appalling. Um, just so your listeners know, what, what happens is in in cricket – you have the three the three stumps in the ground, and about a metre and a bit in front of that is what we call your batting crease. So the batsman has to be inside that crease. If the opposition team hit the wood of the stumps and knocked the bales off and you're outside the crease, you're out. And what Bearstow did was he, he literally didn't play at a shot. It went to the wicketkeeper, and he stepped outside the crease thinking it was over. Yeah. Now, the, the rules of the game say it's not over. Now, the argument is 
was it against the spirit of the game? Again, the Sydney Morning Herald, it's a great, a great headline. It said, here's the rules of Lord's Long Room Fight Club. Rule one, know the rules. <laughs> and and it, it was referred to the umpires who said he was out. They referred it up to a third, um, what we call a third umpire, who's basically a TMO, who also said it's out. So technically and within the law books, he was definitely out. As I said, I have seen it. Now, the English didn't like it. They said it's against the, the spirit of the game. Now, here's the other one. Now, I don't know this. I've only read this. They're saying the best though in the first test, you know, try to do it to one of the Australian batsmen, but missed the, missed the stumps. So, look, I, I do think the it, it was a great test. It it, it was exciting. Uh, ben Stokes' uh, innings after that, I think he got 145, was just unbelievable yeah. uh, cricket from him. Some of the best batting I've ever seen in my life. But this has overruled the whole thing. And the behaviour and the commentary from the English from day one has, has been really offensive. And I, I, you've got to understand, Joe, I'll come back a little bit. Australians play cricket really hard. They, they are, when I play cricket, everything is really hard. It is absolutely um, down on, on brass knuckles, on, on fighting, on how you do it. They play it a very, very hard, aggressive way. And the English have started to play a very similar way, and, and it's been really entertaining. Mm. And they're calling it baseball yes. after their coach. But they've just been bragging and bragging and bragging, been really, really disrespectful from day one of the Australians, like the chanting and the stuff they've been giving the Australians. And so what do they expect? The Australians have just given it back. And and that's exactly what's occurred in this, this instance. Well, I've also seen what you read, that Bairstow attempted something very similar to what happened to him on day three, and there have been numerous other examples of England doing it in the past, uh, including against uh, New Zealand, where against yeah. Colin de Grandhomme when he was out of his crease as well. So against the spirit of the game, it may be, but it does seem to be reasonably commonplace. So um, there's a degree in what you do about nothing. Will the, is, is this so significant? I mean, to be fair, maybe what happened in the clubhouse is, is, is kind of so memorable. It will always be remembered in tandem with um, this Australian win but like will it overshadow it forever like there's not an asterisk beside this um, win because of this that'd, that'd be gone too far I presume would it oh yeah yeah and again this is straight down straight down national lines so the you know as you say the Prime Minister of England's weighed in and uh, the Prime Minister of Australia's also weighed in which is <laughs> you lost get on with it <laughs> okay <laughs> Which, which, and both, both them are politicians. They're both playing politics. The Australians are saying, "Look, yeah, okay, it's tough." Yeah. But if if that was done to us, if I'm I'm deadly serious, yeah, if that was done to us, I'd be saying to our batsmen, "That's you're stupid, mate. You've got to wait inside your crease until it's over." Yeah. And that's the first one well, as a batsman when you're a kid going out the bat. That's one of the first things you're showing. You've got to have your feet or your bat inside that line at all times. Mm. And the ball is dead. Well, in cricket, we said the ball's bowled. Hits the wicket keeper. There's a few seconds, the ball's dead. But yeah. the keeper, Kerry, caught it and immediately threw it down. So I was, I didn't see that live. I was listening to it, and, and I was listening to the BBC. Of course, I'm in Europe, and I can't get the Australian um, commentary. So I listened to the BBC, and they were aggrieved. And when I saw it, I, I straight away said, no, 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 that's out, in, in, as far as I'm concerned. It... it it's a shame for England because I think they might have won the test with Besto there. But as far as the rules of the game and how we would play it in Australia, and I've seen it done in Australia, often if you step outside your crease, you're fair game. And that's your fault, not, not, the, not the fielding side's fault. Okay, fair enough. 
Uh, let's turn to rugby then. There was a big announcement on Saturday. Look, I, 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 as far as I can remember, there's been an effort to try and sort out the rugby calendar, and I, I would think it dates back to '95 and beyond. And, and yep. you, you know, you'd be au okay fait with the many efforts to sort out the calendar. But on Saturday, I think reasonably significant, a joint announcement from yep. Sanzar and the Six Nations that the Nations Championship, that is a working title, by the way, but the Nations Championship is what they're calling it for the time being, will begin in 2026. They do need World Rugby to rubber stamp this in the autumn, which is interesting, but um, I guess they're confident-ish of that happening. Uh, So the plan is, for anybody who hasn't heard the announcement, this will be held every two years in even-numbered years, the World Cup, and thankfully the Lions Tours will uh, survive. If you're a lover of Lions Tours, they will very much remain... Uh, as was so this will be a 12 team competition there's 6 teams in the 6 nations and then the 4 teams in the rugby championship New Zealand Australia Argentina South Africa and 2 more most likely Japan and Fiji and so every July every 6 nations team will play the 3 southern hemisphere opponents and then host the remaining 3 teams at home in November so they'll still travel in July and they'll be at home in November and it will culminate in a world grand final and there'll be a relegation component from 2030. The big nations want the first couple of years to, to bed in and get comfortable. But the likes of Samoa, Tonga, Japan, Romania, Georgia, Spain, etc. can, in theory, I guess, unlike in Six Nations or um, the Rugby Championship, in theory, they can get to the top table. Look, I have to say, at a glance, I was punching the air. I mean, this whets the appetite. I'll, I'll watch this, no problem. What, what's your immediate response? Uh, Twenty-five years too late, Joe. But it's thank you know, <laughs> thank heavens it came through. Thank heavens it came through. This wipes out all the anomalies of Ireland only uh, playing Australia in two thousand nineteen, and then last year of Eddie Jones. The whole time, Eddie Jones coached England. He was seven years. He played New Zealand once. France. Uh, have played South Africa once since 2017. It, it, the the, the non-Six Nations games and non-World Cup games have been run like they were run in, in uh, 1890. You know, uh, basically people ringing each other up, would you like a game? We're trying to make money and so on. So this, and that's why those of us that um, aren't, aren't cynical, but, but understand the workings, see the world rankings as they currently are, as very fallible and very loose because not everyone is playing each other on a regular basis. So this takes that out of the equation. It also takes out the four-year cycle of the World Cup, which I think is very good because people too often say, oh, look, we're building for a World Cup. And, And therefore that gives them this the nations this opportunity to not focus on winning and being really uh, active in their coaching and, and alignment and planning. So with this, every two years, that means you have a World Cup year, you'll you'll have the Nations Championship, then you'll, as you say, working title, you'll have the Lions, and then another one, and then another World Cup year. So this gives real meaning to the, to the summer tours, as we have known them, and the November... Uh, autumn internationals or friendlies and there's no such thing as a friendly and now that's dead and I think that's a really really good thing it also is a very good thing for an organised process for tier 2 and I I, again you know it's Japan and Fiji and I watch this space for America for the United States because they have the World Cup following and the the, the MLR the Major League Rugby is just coming to its um, conclusion on its sixth season and it's sustainable and holding up and there is they are pushing very much 
for America to lift. And I would suspect that very shortly America will be trying, the, the, the American Eagles, which is their national team, will be pushed into that sixth spot in the South to try and give them a boost. So there's a whole lot of um, ramifications for that, but all positive. And, of course, the other one, Joe, is it's keeping South Africa in the championship and not bring them into the Six Nations. I think if they, and there was a lot of pressure coming for the Six Nations committee to do that. It would have been a giant mistake for world rugby on every front of they haven't. And you are exactly right. The significance of this announcement is it's a, a combined uh, agreement with Sanzar and the Six Nations. So these are the two big organisations, the South and North, getting together and saying, let's do it, let's keep player welfare high. The negative for me, Joe, the only negative is we are still bound by the length of the season that the French and English clubs want, which is why we have these two windows. And, and until we change that, and I can't see how that's going to change, until we change that, we have a very, very long season for the players. Yes. That's that's my only my only um, negative in what I think is a very positive step. No, fair point, yeah. So, um, as you say, owned and operated by Sanzar and the Six Nations, not World Rugby. Yeah. This is not a World Rugby-owned yeah. venture, so I'm sure they're spitting. <laughs> I'm sure they'd quite like to own that. It, they, they would, Joe. I, I think this is a great victory for the reformists within world rugby. And okay. as you know, I'm a real critic of the lack of uh, reform of the laws and the structures of the game from world rugby because there are lots of groups within world rugby that are purely there serving their self-interest as in the interest of their nation, not the interests of the game. They're not taking the broader interests of rugby as a global sport. And I, I am very, very critical of those people. When Bernard Laporte left, I thought this was lost because he was a great proponent of this. Um, your listeners may know he was the president of the French Rugby and unfortunately he was found to have um, taken a, a bribe and had to step down. Now, there's a lot of controversy over that in France as well, but that's where it is now. Somewhere in that process the reformists have been able to find the common ground. And the common ground is to take it out of world rugby's grasp and to give it to the Six Nations and and the um, championship, Sanzar, in the South. That seems to have been the piece of political machinations that allowed this to go through. And a genius move from uh, the people involved because it has taken those negative people, uh, the negative votes away, put it into a progress and also enhance the tier two nations. And that is huge. Mm. It is huge to enhance the tier two nations. So yeah, a, a great piece of politics and a very positive move for the, for the game across the globe. So again, 2026 is when this is due to be launched. Relegation will kick in from yeah. 2030. Uh, in terms of player welfare, it does seem based on the couple of pieces I've read and this is early days certainly it will mean one extra test match per year maybe two yeah. there's talk of the Six Nations losing one of their rest weeks um, which I guess is not ideal but I guess the calendar is so squeezed no. they have to squeeze uh, somewhere so that's where we are on that um, I, I, you wrote a I thought it was a fascinating piece just uh, looking ahead to the World Cup at large in the Irish Times at the weekend and seeing as we're talking about the global calendar. You made a great point on South Africa, which I hadn't fully appreciated. So as we know, their clubs are very much fighting on a European front now, whereas the national side is still Southern Hemisphere facing. So by way of contrast, Ireland will play them at the World Cup. The Irish players wound up uh, after the Heineken Champions Cup final. They've had time off. They've had a break. They've 
uh, come together in camp now, which I'm sure is uh, done at a very nice, leisurely pace as they try and um, get up to full fitness come September. Whereas the South Africans, I mean, far from them having a rest after a long club season and lots of flights up and down to Europe, they're lacing up their boots and they're playing uh, in the rugby championship now. And so come World Cup final, were they to get to the World Cup final match, you were making the point that many of these South African players, admittedly with a few breaks in there, but they'll have been basically in continuous competition, either at club level or for South Africa in the Rugby Championship this summer, for almost 15 months. Now, that is a lot of hotels and a lot of flights and a lot of just on the go and adrenaline. And yeah, I I guess you haven't really appreciated the the danger of burnout for South Africa. Like, maybe they get through this year, I don't know, but it's not a sustainable model for a lot of those guys, surely. It's, this is, this is, what I, I and a lot of other people who have been on that, that circuit and know how difficult it is and how draining you keep saying, how are they going to do this? And you imagine then if they came into the Six Nations, how do you do long-haul turnarounds between South Africa and and um, the North and play on consecutive weeks at altitude? Like it's just, it's just asking the athletes to do something crazy. So I'm glad that's out of the way. But um, I think it was the Stormers have done nine – long-haul flights in the season to Europe for their games. And everyone saw them cheering when Leinster lost. I mean, they weren't cheering because they thought they could beat Munster. They were cheering they didn't have to get on an aeroplane <laughs> to yeah. fly up north. They could have it at home. Yeah. You know? And they were going, thank God, we could sleep at our own beds. And it didn't do them any good. And Munster deserved huge credit for that. But it is it, the model that the South Africans are pursuing is not sustainable, in my opinion. Because then if you look at what the July window does, so for this Champions, this Nations Cup, sorry, They'll have a July window. Then after that, they'll step into the Tri-Nations, to the championship. Mm. The, the, sorry, not the, it used to be the Tri-Nations, the championship with Argentina, Australia, and South Africa, two rounds each. So they'll be playing through October. What do they do then? They go, go back to their clubs yeah. and keep playing in Europe and the URC. I, I'm looking at it going, well, they, they're going to have to say to the clubs, right, there's a two-month period where you don't have them. Uh, otherwise, I just I, I'm not sure how you do it. Now they are rested, they are taken out for periods of time, they are put in training camps, but it, it's the reco- uh, the emotional and mental recovery too that that I think people really underestimate. Um, that we saw, I think, that build up on Michael Hooper and last season it caused Michael to just to say, look, I, I just can't cope here. I need a couple of months off. Mm. What we're asking our athletes to do, especially in the south with the long-haul flights where you're going between Australia and New Zealand, Argentina and and South Africa, across the Indian Ocean and across the Pacific Ocean and back again and then having to play. It, it's unbelievably uh, draining emotionally and physically on the players for uh, after a period of time. And that fatigue is accumulative, Joe, is, as we often talk about. So how the South Africans managed it in the long, long run uh, remains to be seen. I actually think in the pool stages... I think they'll be okay. It's when you start coming into four or five giant test matches in a row, they might find themselves vulnerable. Uh, you might find some injuries and they might find themselves vulnerable at the end of the World Cup. I think there's still going to be a handful in Paris for, for Ireland. But if they get through the quarters and so on, uh, that's that's where it could be a really difficult time for them. Yeah, be very understandable. You were impressed with the Super Rugby Final Crusaders and the Chiefs, and not least the breakdown as the, the, yeah. that, that has an intensified in a big way. In, in short, you think New Zealand will be just fine at this World Cup? 
Oh yeah, mate. They never. <laughs> I, I, I know. Um, I know. When when Ireland went down there and played so magnificently, and, and you know, it is one of the greatest moments in Irish sport ever. And the New Zealanders went in a crisis mode, mate. Give me a crisis like that any day of the week. <laughs> they're, they're not in crisis. They are a handful. Um, they're the the breakdown across across the semi-finals, the playoffs, the quarters, the semis, and the final. The New Zealanders at the breakdown were just absolutely incredible. Just on a side note, Joe, yeah. to be fair to the Australians, they competed. They competed quite well, especially the Brumbies, and the Reds improved. And so did the Warriors. Um, weren't weren't up to the to the job, but they're not a million miles behind now. The, the other two Australian sides are a long way behind, but the three Australian sides out of that, especially the Brumbies playing so well, they were put together a good twenty three. But the New Zealanders at the breakdown were so low to the ground, so precise, so aggressive, so technically excellent, and not just once or twice during the game. I was watching it just just in awe of what they were doing consistently, and. Uh, the Crusaders, in particular, forced so many turnovers. Now, now, as as did the Chiefs, where they were very good as well. But the Crusaders were were above them and and created these turnovers or penalties that stopped the opposition playing. And that's going to be a key. And we, I, I think we saw a lot of that from Lara Shell as well. There's, when you've got a team that is so dominant at the breakdown, you, they either still and that's the bottom line. What's the best form of attack? A defence rather get the ball back. And that's what the New Zealanders were doing exceptionally well. And uh, you know, a- anyone that thinks they're they're out of sorts or they're they're not contenders, that that's uh, that's that's really madness. They're, they are going to be a real handful at uh, at the World Cup. And I, I actually think they're going to surprise a few people because you, there's one thing that they are, and that's uh, they're hurt and they're angry, mm. and that's when the Kiwis are very dangerous, very very dangerous. Um, I I don't really know what to say with the next story, but um, previously Warren Gatlin would take his team off to Poland and get them extraordinarily fit. So it seems for this World Cup, it's more a, a psychological challenge he's looking for. So he was talking here the other week to The Guardian about their recent um, preparation week that they had. Um, he said it was a, a psychological challenge that we put them through. They did some power endurance stuff. They were carrying logs uphill and then having to go into a pool. Okay, fair enough, I guess. Uh, but then he says, we were talking about putting them in uncomfortable positions and asking, how do you get your heart rate back down? How do you get your composure back? They did some stuff where we put them in hoods and had water tipped over them. So, you know, like waterboarding. Um, when they weren't expecting it, uh, the water was poured. And then we played them babies crying, things going off. And then we had a few beers in the afternoon. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I mean, look, if it works, it's a genius. But uh wouldn't be for me, Matt. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man, I was embarrassed when I read that. I was truly embarrassed when I read that. I thought, you know, really? I... <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Joe, I've heard this, and I've been involved in it, Tom, again. I was assistant coach of the Waratahs many years ago. They took us down to the SAS have a base on Sydney Harbour, Australian SAS. And, and much of Sydney Harbour is, is military because it's owned by the Navy. They took us down at night, put us in the harbour with flippers, and we had to swim about three cases as a group linking arms in the dark in night in Sydney Harbour. Now, was it scary? Yeah. Did we have to overcome that fear? Yeah. Was it challenging? Yeah. 
And as one of the guys said to me, as we're getting out of the water, he looked at me and says, if we could only get those other buggers in this water, we'd boot them. You, know? <laughs> you, don't, you don't play them in the water. You don't, you don't play them with masks over your head and babies crying. Oh, it's not something I'm a fan of, Joe. And a lot of, you know, does it make the, the – the Kiwis, when they won the America's Cup, had a saying. They, when they made a decision, does it make the boat go faster? Yeah. If it makes the boat go faster, they do it. If it doesn't, they don't. Does that make Wales play better? Well, you know, I, I can't see it. I can't see how that sort of day has anything with it. Because for every player that gets something out of it, there's going to be another two who think that is just stupidity. Yes, I, yes. I'm not a soldier. I'm not a soldier. I'm a rugby player. What's how's that going to help me? How's that going to move me forward? That, you know, and and so many teams have tried it, and I've yet to see someone that comes out and say, "Well, that was a day. That was a day mm -hmm. that turned us." You know when we're getting waterboarded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I must say, I would be one of the players thinking, oh, really? I, you, you would lose me. You'd lose me. Um, last one before clock um, comes against me. You mentioned Australia there a couple of times. They're mm. obviously on a very nice side of the draw. What is the word on how things are going under Eddie Jones? Are Australia starting to feel kind of optimistic about this World Cup or no? Oh, Joe, I'd, I'd, I'd say no. Um, Eddie's made a huge difference coming home because Eddie's huge personality and they've used him personality uh, Dave Reno's a lovely guy respectful so he kept a very low profile and Eddie's out there giving he's talking to everyone he's controversial he's giving it to the rugby league he's being on every podcast every radio station he's out there and they're pushing him and Eddie brought in a brand new uh, staff let all the other staff go which I don't necessarily agree with we had some great young Australian coaches and that other staff um, that they let go and I think that's I didn't agree with that it's not, not the point and Eddie does have an effect on players. He will, and especially in the short term. Teams, if you look at Eddie's history, when he takes over a team, they perform. It's the long-term relationships of his workaholic nature that tends to burn out relationships later on. And I think with all those players available, they, they can put together a decent 23. Their problem for Australia is around the 9 and 10. They're, they're, they're um, so shallow. The pool of talent in that area is so shallow. They're, they're three-quarter line. Ends were a bit like, uh, not quite like Johnny Sexton, but, you know, quite as well in his 30s. All, all the players that we'll be selecting within, with one or two exceptions are, are at the end of their career and not the lightning fast players they were. That's a big, big problem for Australia. The plus for Australia is they're on the right side of the draw. They've got whales in their pool and the rest of the pool, you know, they should be able to handle and therefore manage their players very well. So when they come to the quarters... If they manage their players, they could on a good side of a draw. Their path to a semi is good. Mm. Once you make a semi at a World Cup, you're in it. You are live. And their path to a semi is much, much easier than Ireland's after the draw. France, New Zealand, South Africa and Ireland, only two of them are going to make it. But the, the, the Australians have a very good shot. Okay. Listen, we'll let you get back to your uh, trip. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Matt. Pleasure, Joe. Nice to talk to you, mate. See you. Matt Williams uh, with us and our rugby coverage off the ball as well. Thanks to Vodafone, Ireland's most reliable mobile network and proud sponsor of the Irish rugby team. Rugby on Off the Ball. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us.